We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns Podcast. My name is Mike, here with Sam. Sam, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. First NFL Sunday for much of America. Lots mm, of people for are those excited. Who celebrate. For yeah. those who celebrate. <laughs> but we don't care here at the Timeline. We are ready to talk uh, more Suns basketball and continue on with our external development series, this time with a guest. I am very excited. Yes, yes excited to have our friend, on the podcast, Steven. Steven Pridgen, how you doing, Steven? I'm doing great, guys. How about y'all? How y'all doing? I'm excited. We were talking about it just before we started recording here. It just feels like basketball's on the horizon now. I know football just started. I know for a lot of people, like it's almost enough just to think about football. For But for me, for us, the three of us on this podcast, it just feels like basketball's on the horizon, and I'm excited it's, for that. For Stephen and I, who live in like northern type places, it, it's kind of that first hint of cool fall air is starting to uh, sprinkle <laughs> in. For you guys in Phoenix, I guess it probably means that the temperature broke below 90 or 100 <laughs> for the first time or, or something. But when NFL season comes around, you, you can feel it coming. It's like a tangible thing that marks uh, the calendar. Most definitely. I think that was poetically said. <laughs> yes. yes. Steven, I want to just quickly just mention, for those who may not know you, you, you do a lot uh, in writing about basketball. You write, I think, occasionally for Bright Side of the Sun. Now you are also doing some occasional uh, work on PHNX. You cover the Chicago Sky as well. Um, is there anything else I've missed in that? Nah, I've consolidated, thankfully, um, <laughs> to those three <laughs> outlets. Um, I had a bunch of running tabs just, you know, making my deposits and efforts and getting those reps, but we consolidated it to those three moving forward. Yeah, perfect. And the, I was just talking about it, too, with you before we started recording, but uh, the last time we had you on, we were covering what Kevin Durant would look like on the Phoenix Suns, and now we have the opportunity to cover Kevin Durant in this external development series. 
Uh, I'm really excited to talk about it. Let's get right into it. Let's do it. Now the story of an NBA team that traded everything and the one thing that could keep them all together. It's external development. Okay, so for this series, we do three main questions. I know most people listening have heard it, but I like to cover it at the beginning of each one of these. The, the first question is, who is the player? This is going to be a funny conversation, right? Explaining to people who are obsessed with basketball who Kevin Durant is. Uh, <laughs> but we all know, but it's, it's always good to set some sort of baseline of, of our understanding of who they are as a player, especially someone like Kevin Durant who's had a long career and is at, you know, has had different stops in different phases of his career throughout. Uh, and then we're going to talk about what we used to call the internal development part of the podcast, but more about how they can really fit into the Suns and how the Suns can fit around them, which is probably a little more of the conversation for Kevin Durant. And then at the end of it, we'll talk about how confident we are in the improvements or changes that need to be made in order for the Suns to ultimately at this point win a championship. That's what this conversation has become about. And that is what the expectations are for the Phoenix Suns this season. So let's get started with who Kevin Durant is. And I, Steven, you could feel free to take this wherever you want. But when I talk about <laughs> Kevin Durant as a basketball player, we'll cover stats, we'll cover details, stuff like that as well. But what's the first thing that comes to mind well, uh, for you? I think this is the perfect opportunity to bring up that clip from when he was, um, was in Golden State. And they were asking some kind of baseline question. And he's, my, his response was, I'm Kevin freaking Durant. You know who I am. <laughs> I feel like that's the most perfect way to start it right there. Um, but if you want to be specific with looking at his accolades, we got a two-time champion back-to-back in 2017 and 18. Finals MVP in both of those. Um, was the most improved in 2014. And then you can go into the more career-long stats like 13-time All-Star, two-time All-Star MVP, six-times All-First Team. Like, just the... Maybe the most unicorn player to ever touch the hardwood. Yeah. Sam, what do you think? He's the greatest pure scorer in the history of the sport. That's oh. that's what he is. And and I don't I think love it. I don't think that's such a unpopular opinion at this point no. though. Like people have their reasons to hate K D. I get it. A lot of people still, you know, hold a stigma against him because of the way things ended in, in OKC and going to Golden State and whatever. Even Brooklyn, you know, a lot of people hated that move too, but the stats speak for themselves. Uh, here's here's my first one <clears throat> of the episode. Uh, two players all time in NBA history have scored in a single season at least 25 points per game on 60% shooting from two and 40% shooting from three. Those two players are Kevin Durant, age 34, last year between the Brooklyn Nets and the Phoenix Suns, and 2013 LeBron James, which I think a lot of people was MVP LeBron James. I think a lot of people would also say was his absolute peak uh and at that time with the miami heat uh he just every spot on the floor is his spot there's no spot on the floor where he's not dangerous uh where he can't cook you that's who kevin durant is i I mean you know he creates gravity from every spot on the floor in a way that after only seeing it for eight games in the regular season and a couple of rounds in the playoffs i think we still have to reckon with we still don't quite understand quite uh what that can do for the sun's offense I uh, wrote a list of the ways that Kevin Durant can score. Um, I'll just read it. He can score in isolation, off handoffs, catch and shoot, pick and roll as a ball handler, pick and roll as a screener, 
off movement, standstill. He can score with a hezzy. He can score with a crossover, with spins. He can score in the post. He can turn over his right shoulder. He can turn over his left shoulder. He can shoot fadeaways. He can hit shots at the rim, whether it be crazy finishes as layups. He can hit dunks. He can shoot step backs. There's essentially nothing as far as scoring the basketball that he can't do. And this is even just talking about last season. And and it's just rare, I think, for a player to be this good, this old. And look, I'm not to say that he's old, but like oftentimes players will start declining at certain points. But And you can talk about different ways that maybe he has, and we'll get to that in a minute. But statistically, when you look at it, at least in the regular season for him, last season was one of his best scoring seasons of his career. He was essentially the best mid-range scorer ever Mm -hmm. it like had the best mid-range scoring season in the history of the nba last season uh at at 34 and and it's just remarkable to see his career and you know i'm still we talked about this this is external development now people will probably say why is it in, in why is it not internal development fair he did play on the suns last year but to me eight games and then of course the playoffs which to me went by in a blur it still doesn't feel like he's on the Suns for me. Like I'm still getting used to it. I've watched every year of Kevin Durant's career, and with the combination of adding new players, adding a new coach, and the changes that are going to be made, integrating Kevin Durant into the Suns, into the system that we're going to have, still feels like something that needs to happen. It doesn't feel like something that happened last season. So for me, it's still like, it's just, it's just fresh. It's new. I know Steven, I'm sure you've been a fan of Kevin Durant, his whole career. Is this something that you feel used to at this point? Well, yeah, if you, if you like basketball, (laughs) you have to enjoy Kevin Durant's game. Um, But yes, I would, I would definitely agree with everything that you were just saying in regards to KD and just, just who he is, man. He's such a polarizing figure and to do so at a very slender frame, like it's just, the way he dominates the game is just special, man. He's just a special hooper. Now, I got some basic stats that I want to cover, too. Um, and then I would like to hear if you guys have any that you found that you find interesting. I want to hear those as well. Um, but I was looking at last year's just his scoring and, and what he did in the regular season and, and just the eight games he played on the Suns. And I know it's not much. But I wanted to look at that period because, look, it's when he was next to Devin Booker, and that's what we're going to be looking at in the future. So I thought it was the most relevant. Um, and just as as far as a frequency of type of shots that he was shooting, 31% of his shots were catch-and-shoots. 52% were pull-up shots. Now, this is a guy who can do both. And this is with Chris Paul on the team. Now, how that number may change in the future with Bradley Beal is going to be interesting. But of his catch-and-shoots, he shot 40 catch-and-shoots. He made 60% of them in those eight games, including 60% from three. And then of his pull-up shots, he shot 67 of those, and he made 55% of his pull-up shots. So this is it's just insane when you start digging into how efficient Kevin Durant was last season. One thing I will note here, maybe it's more part of a future part of the conversation, um, but in the playoffs, that number did change pretty dramatically. Uh, the total percentage of shots that he took were, that were catch-and-shoots actually almost were halved. So it went from 30 per, 31% of his shots to 18%. And the percentages went down from 60% in the regular season to 45% in the playoffs. 
Larger sample size in the playoffs for him, obviously, because only eight games in the regular season. And then he shot 58% of his shots were pull-up shots, and he shot 42% on those. Efficiency almost identical for both of those in a similar way that it was in the regular season, but an overall dip in efficiency in the playoffs, which we can talk about why or what happened there later. But I did find the catch-and-shoot number sinking so much to be slightly interesting to me. Sam, do you have any specific <laughs> stats? I know you already brought one up that you want to talk about with Kevin Durant. Yeah, sure. I mean, like I'll just go off of kind of what you were talking about there. This is kind of just a slightly different way to say it because you were talking about pull-ups versus catch-and-shoots. But uh, if you look at the synergy numbers for what he did as a pick-and-roll ball handler, he was in the 98th percentile in efficiency, 1.20 points per possession. If you look at his synergy stats as a spot-up shooter, he was in the 99th percentile in efficiency, 1.43. These are his stats between Phoenix and Brooklyn combined. Just to say that reiterating there's no wrong answer with how to use Kevin Durant on offense. I, I, I really don't think there is. And the conversation, the ensuing conversation we need to have about, you know, what they do end up doing with him, if he's going to be kind of more of a play initiator or a play finisher, to what extent he's going to spend time uh, as like Monty Williams once referred to him as an expensive decoy, you know, just chilling in the corner or whatever, which he could do very well too, by the way. Uh, we're going to have to figure out exactly what that balance and split is. But all of that is more based on Beal and Booker. Uh, and so we need to have the discussion about how he fits with Beal and Booker specifically. Because just for KD himself, he does it all. Uh, and he's among the league's best at, at all of these things. It's it's literally insane. Do you have any uh, interesting stats there, Stephen, that you want to cover? Yeah. So uh, what really stood out to me, especially speaking to why he's the best pure scorer, which is his efficiency on volume. As a Phoenix Sun in the regular season last year, um, he was at 67.5% on his no-dribble pull-ups, which yep. I feel like is a subtlety in this game. But it's one of the most uh, most lethal. You look at players like Kobe, Melo, T-Mac, uh, all of those elite yeah. scorers all time had that zero-dribble pull-up. And I think the reason why it's so important is, for one, it's taking, taking advantage of his stature which means he has to get into optimized uh, post position, which is something that I'm going to speak to later. But I think the other big thing about it is it forces him to exert zero energy. He doesn't have to take any dribbles. He doesn't have to really endure much contact because his no-dribble pull-ups oftentimes come with one leg in the air. So <laughs> it just really yeah, speaks yeah. to his efficiencies uh, just as a scorer, how easily he can do it to conserve his energy to be that two-way effective player that he can be. Uh, and then kind of going back to the to the um, the pull-ups, on one attempt, he were one dribble pull-ups, he was at 50%. Two dribble pull-ups, he was at 62 And then three to six <laughs> dribbles, he was at 63.3%. That's so, <laughs> so crazy. And it's just, like, you talk about players that like to shoot off the dribble. Chris Paul is one of the best of all time, especially at his stature, at doing that. Even for as efficient as he was on a lower volume, albeit, Kevin Durant's numbers increasing essentially with the more dribbles he takes. It's just yeah, unreal, yeah. man. It's such a riddle to solve across the entire NBA. I, I, I do think with with Durant, there is a thing with him where he, if he's dribbling a lot towards the rim, there's a good chance that instead of trying to shoot a layup, he's going to just kind of drop his shoulder, absorb the contact, and shoot a fadeaway yeah. shot. Instead, it, it, and that to me is kind of similar to Chris Paul <laughs> in that it's almost like instead of a layup, I'm shooting a jump shot 
on this shot and both of course insanely efficient on those mid-range shots but you know you talked about how he does what he does at such a slender frame that ability to absorb contact and and not necessarily even just absorb it but look for it and use it as an advantage to create space for his jump shots is something that is you know it's it's actually kind of hard to it's you know things we've been asking for for other players in the suns like deandre and for a while because if you it's hard to teach you have to want to do it and durant as somebody who is a, a slender player does it he's willing to absorb that contact he's willing to create it in order to allow him to have space on that. But Sam, I know you wanted to say something on that as well. Well, just first of all, to what you were speaking to with uh, Chris Paul there, I mean, duh, Kevin Durant is a better scorer than Chris Paul. We know that. But like <laughs> one of the bigger things, what, what makes him so different, Chris Paul snaking the pick and roll, and then he's 90% of the time pulling up in that 16-foot area. Like you know exactly where it's coming from. We know the spot. KD can absorb the, contract and, uh, the contact, and he just takes significantly more attempts in that like, four to eight foot range where it's it basically almost is a layup but it's just kind of like that short floater range and for him like his percentages even in that area are still up in the 70 70 something percent like it's it's absolutely ridiculous what he can do from that area um the other thing i was just going to say was i i think steven made a really good point in just talking about the energy conservation on the whole zero uh dribble pull-up game from kd as really one of the things that distinguishes him even from beal and booker uh, and is hopefully going to help him in terms of not just conserving his energy to be a two-way player, which is what Steven made reference to, but also, you know, in, in the best case scenario, injury prevention. It's something that's going to be really important for KD this year. Um, you, you look at the drive statistics for these guys too. KD is like driving the ball maybe half as often as a guy like Bradley Beal. And he's also driving significantly less often than Devin Booker at his age. Um, he's not just going to be getting the ball at the top of the key and, and, and going to work like maybe he used to once upon a time on the OKC Thunder. He's going to play a much more important role in that elbow area for, for the Suns offense specifically, I think, where he can just rise over the top of basically anyone if it's in single coverage, hit the mid-range jump shot uh, without taking a single dribble, or he can kind of maybe work a two-way game from there depending on if it's Booker or Beal kind of handling most of the playmaking chops. So... Uh, just the fact that he can conserve his energy like that on offense is just one more amazing thing about him. Yeah, especially because he likes to play a ton of minutes. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't really want to come out of the game. And to to be able to conserve energy well on the court is going to be important for this team, not only because, you know, we're probably going to need him to play a lot of minutes come playoff time, uh, but also you kind of have to pick your spots when there's three star players. It's, it's just a different type of thing. You know, I was looking at drives per game actually for Kevin Durant, uh, being that you mentioned that Sam 5.5 drives per game on the Suns last year for Kevin Durant. This is regular season stats, which is a low, relatively low. low number, you know, not low for someone who's six eleven, but low for someone that has the ball control that, that Kevin Durant does and look he's not Giannis and and if he played like Giannis it would be a disaster because he wouldn't last long in a season if he was as reckless as Giannis is Giannis is just one of those guys like LeBron who can do that over and over and over again without getting injured but if you look at previous seasons for Kevin Durant I did find the numbers to be kind of interesting 5.5 last season on the Suns previous season full season in Brooklyn 9.8 per game which is a lot at the age that Kevin Durant was playing at on that team the previous season, 2021, when he was coming back 
from injury, only 32 games played, 8.4 drives per game. And then the last two seasons he was on uh, Golden State, 2019, 7.5 drives per game. But then 2018, almost identical to what he did on the Suns, 5.7 drives per game. And this is all of this to say that the 5.5 drives per game for Durant, even if it feels like a low number, it doesn't really feel concerning in in a way. Now, I, I would like to ask both of you, first of all, what you think about these numbers, but also how you think Kevin Durant has changed over the years. Because I do think the drives has something to do with that. Um, but I do look at his time in Golden State now because of the type of players that he was playing with. In a, like I feel like there's more to learn from that than there is to learn from his time playing with Kyrie Irving and James Harden. Barely playing with Kyrie Irving and James Harden. Yeah, they only played a few <laughs> games there, right? Yeah, it's just, but also it's so different. It's just so dramatically different to play with guys like Bradley Beal and Devin Booker than James Harden and Kyrie Irving. You know, and I, I'm more interested in that. And I did find that 5.7 number of drives per game as interesting when he was on the Golden State Warriors. That's how far back I had to go for him to have a season that was even comparable. I think to this last season in his time with the Suns, and it could change. I think it's going to change dramatically. In fact, when we get to the next segment, I want to talk about what Frank Vogel talked about with the Suns team and how he anticipates they're going to be playing offense. But Stephen, I want to ask you what you think about those drives numbers, and just from a general sense, I know you've watched Kevin Durant his whole career. Similarly to Sam and I, how do you think he's developed and changed his game over the years? And where he is now compared to maybe where he was five, six, seven, ten years ago even. I think that was a great point that you brought up with the drives and just kind of looking at how a player's shot profile and uh, the versatility within that shot profile, how it's become a little bit more concise rather than being stretching across multiple spectrums. I think that was a great point. Uh, I think some of his methods of operation, uh, like I can vividly remember him coming off staggers sometimes uh on a higher volume in Oklahoma City, whether it be just for the catch or for him to mm-hmm. get into his footwork and go and catch and shoot. Um, somewhat similarly, similarly to how Ray Allen or like Steph Curry would. Um, but I think just the usage coming off of screens, I think it's more so pin downs for a catch position than it is for him coming off of pin down variations and cross screen variations to get into uh, like an actual shot off the catch right away. Um, I think that's a unique thing. And I think it's, it helps for him to dictate the game even more because without the drives, he has to kind of move the pieces around him um, just in a, more, in a more unique manner. And I think when he has it on the catch and then he ultimately knows he's going to eventually get a double team from somewhere or there's going to be extreme gap help from somewhere, him being able to get into his passing kind of from that scenario I think is what really just makes his methods of scoring and whatnot and improving in that way just makes it a little different. I like that about his game. And again, that's the difference. I mean, KD's got some issues. We're going to talk about his playmaking a lot in this episode a little bit later, I think. But, you know, just generally speaking, that's the difference between having a 6'11", 7 guy, 7-foot guy uh, reading those double teams when they do come versus, say, Devin Booker in those positions who even he has struggled with them uh, at, at times. He's just a more guardable body. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think those are all really good points, too. It, with uh, Durant, when we're talking about who he is, I think it's also important to talk about how he likes to be used. And, you know, I, I bring up 
Golden State, they they talk about it as a motion offense. And it's funny, looking back, doing this research, I, I saw a quote from Kevin Durant. You guys probably both remember it, but him saying that motion offense, it works really well in the regular season, round one, maybe round two of the playoffs, but then it doesn't. <laughs> it, it needs to change as the playoffs go on. And he likes to isolate. I mean, and, and I think he, he, from his perspective, as somebody who's obsessed with the game, he understands that that's just what happens in the playoffs. Things break down. Defenses get better. They know your plays in and out as well as you do. And that means the improv, the improvisation of the game at that point of it is what you need to do in order to win. So isolating is one thing. Not the other two things I'll mention. You mentioned the pin downs, Steven. I think that's a really great note. He, he, one of his most common plays is coming off a pin down, catching it from the mid range. And then who knows <laughs> what's going to happen after that. Right? Well said. <laughs> Literally anything can happen. He can pull up and shoot. He can do the hesitation uh, pull up that you were talking about. Um, he can drive, he can pass, uh, you know, he can turn it into a post up if he wants to. There's just so many options out of that. And then, of course, the other one, I think, and this really, I think, was something that we saw in the playoffs. And I'm curious how much this happens next season. We saw it more in the playoffs than the regular season. And that's just him as a pick and roll ball handler. He likes to do that. And there is such a huge advantage to running pick and rolls when the ball handler is really tall. You can do inverted pick and rolls with a smaller guy screening, turn it into an isolation against a smaller defender. Of course, if they trap, he's got the size to pass over those guys to roll man or shooters, depending on where the defenders are. Or he can just pass. And, and, and he, I looked at a lot of stats for him. The pick and roll points per possession in the playoffs is like 1.2. It was really good. And that is from all different types of plays that he can make as a pick and roll ball handler uh, sam you had something to say there right i forgot we're <laughs> 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 well, talking about the pin downs i don't know if that triggers your memory um, there what were we talking about oh I, it was just a, i think a point about the motion offense just kind of talking about why a, a more casual point about why maybe more casual fans get so frustrated in the playoffs frequently about why is our offense breaking down so often why does motion offense not work why you know with kevin durant being on the opposite side of the spectrum as someone who understands uh, that sometimes you just need to get isolation buckets in the playoffs just because he has these years and years of experience. Remember playing against some incredible teams like the Houston Rockets uh, who were switching absolutely every single thing against him and kind of changed the league in, in some ways in, in the way that teams play defense now in the playoffs. So you kind of covered it there yeah, afterwards yeah. with what you were talking about. But it's just like, yeah, motion offense at a certain point in the playoffs doesn't work. Uh, you have to assume that everything's going to be a switch. And so you need to be ready to exploit mismatches, not with 100% of your offense, that can have some flaws too. But but yeah, that's where the inverted ball screens and, and all that other stuff comes into play. And I think and the- I think you both made great points with um, fans getting annoyed with how offense bogs down in terms of the movement and all of that stuff come second round, halfway through the second round into the finals and then the NBA finals. I think what's lost and misunderstood is that getting two to the ball is offense in and of itself. There's only a handful of players that can consistently demand two to the ball in varying scenarios. And the fact that the Suns have one that can do it from all three levels of the floor, whether that's initiating and pick and roll, whether that's an elbow mid-post touch or a low block touch, two, two to the ball is when your offense starts. So when you have a player that can not just draw two or sometimes draw two plus gap help from all the other three players on the floor, which opens up obviously everything for everyone else, 
that's where you can really dictate things as far as your offense. Okay, you're guarding our sets well in crunch time. We don't have that much time on the shot clock. Guess what? Here, Kevin Durant. Wait for them to send two to you from somewhere, and then we're going to play out of that. That read and react offense is as vital as anything in the NBA playoffs, especially when you start getting closer to the finals. And that's why Golden State is so consistently better than everybody else in offensive execution because not like the Denver Nuggets, or not unlike the Denver Nuggets, they can go with off-script stuff. And that's all just read and react, just playing off of the advantages that your best player can create, regardless of what schemes and whatnot that an opponent might be trying to run. And once, once you, you get, get a guy, guy who creates those two-to-the-ball advantages consistently, all you need to do as a team is not have Josh Okogie and Landry Shaman yes, on the floor. I was just going to say that. It's super <laughs> helpful time. when people can shoot. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, hopefully that's that's kind of what James Jones was, for his part of the equation, was trying to address this summer. And I have a sneaking suspicion that it's going to look a lot better this year if, say, Eric Gord, I don't know if like if KD's at center. By the way, that's a whole thing we got to talk about. But we let's will. say we will. Yeah. let's say KD's at center, and let's say those other two guys, uh, the non-star players, if you will, on the court, are Eric Gordon and Kade Bates. Diop, I have a feeling it's going to look a lot different this year. Yeah, and I I think when we initially had the conversation with you, Stephen, about this Suns team and how it could look with Kevin Durant, uh, I think you really hammered home post-ups, which is the other play that Kevin Durant likes to do. But what's interesting about the way that post-ups were used, particularly with the Suns, is that it is a pretty sacrificial play for Kevin Durant in those. Like, if they are going to guard him one-on-one, Kevin Durant can turn that into a bucket. A a good, probably more than half of the time um, that that happens. But they don't, right? As soon as he catches the ball in the post, there's the second guy running at him. And just like you talked about, kind of all zoning up on him and closing the entire court down to try to make sure that he can't do too much with it. And then it becomes about swinging the ball. It's about playing four on three, right? It's about trying to find ways to score off of that gravity. But I thought that was something in particular, Stephen, that you really nailed when trying to predict how it would look. And I imagine it's going to look even better when there's shooters around, was that something that did not surprise you when you saw it on the Suns last season? <laughs> it did not. <laughs> and I think uh, just kind of in addition to a point that you made with the just the ability to knock down shots out of that with the rotating defense having the advantage mostly uh, for players on offense versus players on defense out of that, I think the cutting is something else that's going to be really important for the Suns team. KBD is a good cutter. Watanabe can cut. Um, base Diop can cut There's just so many other pieces that they've added And even more than all of that Bradley Bill is a sacrificial cutter Because he knows he's going to get attention But he's also efficient and effective at it as well So I think having yet another star That can ex- excel off the ball But also help with your cutting And things like that Is just really going to tilt courts for them And get wide open looks galore for everybody Yeah it's, it's kind of fascinating to think I think Durant will be the first one doubled uh, on every possession if he touches the ball. But, you know, when you were talking about bringing two guys to the ball, I couldn't help but think, wow, the Suns really have three guys that could force that uh, on this team. And it, it's just, you know, it almost takes the whole offseason for it to really click what this Suns team could potentially look like uh, going forward. Because obviously, in the previous iteration of the Suns, Booker was the guy constantly getting those double teams. And at times he still will. Uh, but now the fact that they have three, it's just going to be so fascinating to see how this team uh, reads and reacts. Now, I want to switch over to the next part because I have a feeling 
We all have a lot to say, but I want to give each of you an opportunity. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? Sam, I'll go with you first here uh, about Kevin Durant and who he is before we switch over to how this can look on the Suns. Next um, I guess it would just be remiss of us not to make a quick note on the defensive side of the ball because we're, we're making the point that, look, this is a two-way impactful player. Uh, you know, Katie has blind spots defensively, and maybe we talk about that in the next section too. I, I honestly don't know what you guys have in your notes, but just to say his rim protection is elite. Uh, I, I've got the stat here. He held players to 9% below their average field goal percentage at the rim. That earned him an A-plus rating from B-ball index. Um, you know, his weak side rim protection is always going to be there, kind of helping to protect um, DeAndre Ayton, who is a good rim protector in his own right in some ways when, when he's locked in, but we know it can be a little bit iffy. Uh, you know, there are other areas on defense where I would say KD is kind of only more so-so in terms of getting deflection, screen navigation, kind of his perimeter defense in general. But uh, we know he's got the versatility. We know he can guard up multiple positions, even if he's not going to be your main lockdown guy. Uh, there's no doubt that he's bringing a lot of value to that end. And uh, yeah, just got to make note of that, right? I think those are great points made. His ability to be a switch anchor and anchor of the second side of a defense is just... It's just as good as anybody that's not like LeBron James and Giannis Antetokounmpo. So having that luxury, especially of his stature and frame, and his IQ even more than all of that is just such a such a weapon. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's talk about how things could potentially look next season. Now, traditionally, this is the internal development part of the podcast. But I think with Kevin Durant, it's really interesting to to think about this through the perspective of, uh, look, the coach was fired last season. And part of the reason the coach was fired is probably because of uh, maybe not utilizing the team around Kevin Durant as well as it could have been utilized. So I think that we can anticipate things changing and things looking a little bit different. Now, maybe that's defensively only and 
Kevin Young uh, won't make too many changes offensively, but based on everything we've heard offensively, it sounds like, one, they're going to be much faster, right? This is something Frank Vogel has really hammered home multiple times. It's it's almost going to be a race for Bradley Beal, Devin Booker, Kevin Durant to be down the floor first because those guys are going to get to shoot <laughs> if they're down the floor first based on the way Frank Vogel has talked about it. But also, you know, no more Chris Paul. And, of course, I'm looking at all of this through the offensive lens first, lens first, but no more Chris Paul on the Suns means that it's different. The, the thing about Chris Paul, so good, such a great offensive player, such an amazing uh, basketball brain. But in order to really maximize Chris Paul, you play Chris Paul ball. You have to kind of play the way that he has maximized himself over the years. Now I think they're a little bit more versatile. Now I think they're a little bit more malleable. And predicting what it will look like is, at least for me, kind of hard. Uh, so we can talk about exactly what we think Kevin Durant can look like um, on the Suns this year. You mentioned as a playmaker, Sam, it, it sounded like you wanted to talk about that in this segment. Am I wrong about that? No, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess just kind of like if you frame it as what is he what what did he struggle at last season on the Suns? I think there's really only a couple of things that you could kind of point at. Because we're talking about a guy, even in the playoffs, and I know the Suns lost in the playoffs and all that, but he averaged 29 points, 9 rebounds, 5.5 assists per game, 48% from the field. The three-point percentage could have been better. Always uber-efficient from the free-throw line. It's like, what what are, we, what are we picking hairs at here? You know, like, there's not that much that we can really talk about. So the playmaking, I think, was one thing that stood out. I know it frustrated me at times. Um, Steven talked about before it is so valuable to have that guy who brings two to the ball who commands that gravity Um, at the same time I think when we're trying to understand the balance of powers between Booker and Beal and and Durant this year and kind of who's going to get the play initiator responsibilities most of the time we have to be honest with ourselves and kind of looking at what are some of Durant's um, not liabilities but but just his what you know, what could potentially be holding him back as a playmaker, right? So I went back, I watched every assist and turnover that he had in the playoffs hmm. against the Clippers and the Nuggets just to kind of get a feel of like, you know, what what was happening, if I could take note of any patterns. I think there were a few different things plaguing him. Um, the first one should not be too surprising, but, you know, you can't deny the laws of physics. Kevin Durant is seven feet tall. He has a high center of gravity. There was some loose dribbling that I think is just always going to... Like, if you look historically in his stats, he has never been a guy to only average, like, two turnovers per game. He has always kind of lost the ball on on, on some of those plays. Um, and the turnover be- percentages go up in the playoffs for him as well pretty pretty regularly. Yeah, and and this is one where, like, I, I just don't think you can really hold it against him too much. I mean, in, in terms of cleaning up your dribble, it's there's a difference between like his physics and literally how he dribbles the ball versus Devin Booker that I don't know how how much can be improved there. Um, One thing that I thought was more amusing than anything else, this was a small one that I think would be really easy for him to clean up. It was very clear when he got traded to Phoenix, at least to me, that he was just not used to spotting up uh, in the corner and then initiating out of that position for dribble drives because the number of times he got called in the playoffs for taking a step back on the dribble drive <laughs> when he caught it in the corner and then that's an instant call from the officials and they do this to NBA players all the time like you see role players do this too but I think it's a little bit different when you have a, a mega star player catching the ball out of the corner trying to initiate a drive 
And then, yeah, his first step is just a negative step, step. steps out of bounds. It's a negative step. Something that he has to clean up. I'm sure he's been working on. I'm sure he was in his head about it. Like at the time, like instantly realizing that that was something, but it was funny to me how often they were calling that on him. Um, and then just the third thing I, you know, I, I talked about this last week, actually, when we were kind of comparing him to Bradley Beal a little bit and to Devin Booker for that matter, but he's a great playmaker. He can see over the top of defenses if two guys come to the ball, I think, you know, he's great if there's a flasher in the middle that can help him. Like, he can make that pass over the over the top of a defense to a cutter, no problem. But he gets thrown off balance. Like, he doesn't make the same skip-style passes that a guy like Devin Booker does in motion. He doesn't make the same cross-court-style passes. And I think especially that was kind of catching up to him in the Denver series when they were starting to send, send two guys at him, is if they caught him in motion... Uh, and he was trying to execute like a cross-court pass, that's where he started to get in trouble. And I think that's where you're going to see maybe some of the more initiative responsibilities falling more towards uh, Booker and Beal. Uh, and then Katie's still going to be heavily involved in these plays, but kind of more as a as a secondary playmaker. What do you think, Steven? Yeah, I think those are all excellent points made, especially with, uh, with Sam speaking to the playmaking out of the post. Uh, if I could just add some numbers for context... Uh, per synergy when he had possessions where he had a post touch in the playoffs and the defense committed so they sent two to the ball his turnover percentage was 24 or 29.4 excuse me that is a humongous ginormous number percentage wise that means that on on those catches 29.4 percent of the time it was a turnover that's that's tough and again, credit the Nuggets and the the Clippers for schematically being specific about the the personnel involved. They would try to keep a bigger player as the player that was coming to set the double team to make his vision at least a little bit tougher than if it was somebody that was six five or shorter that's trying to send a double team. Like he won't even see them. So credit to them for that. But I think that that is going to be kind of the area that really sticks out most um, because if the if the Suns aren't turn the ball over this season that means the ball is probably going in the bucket one of many different ways and the more opportunities you give yourself to do that the better team you could be that's excellent analysis <laughs> yeah yeah just watching some of those plays though it did just feel like like it kind of just felt like they were feeding it to durant in the post and then standing around a little bit and then maybe one cutter Right, and I think that probably was not super helpful <laughs> as well. You know, I'm I, I spent a good twenty minutes today watching the split cut play from the the post split <laughs> cut play f- from the Warriors again because State, I because yeah because yeah, I asked for it when he joined the team previously, but it made less sense then with Chris Paul on the team than it does now. Like now, they almost have to do that now because now you can run a split cut play, and for those who don't know what that is, first of all you can find it pretty easily on YouTube, but the basics of it is the ball is fed into the post and the person that is the closest to passing it. Oh, here's a great example of talking about how it would look. Bradley Beal feeds it to, to Kevin Durant in the post and then immediately screens for Devin Booker, who just kind of swings around to the three point line and behind where Kevin Durant is in the post. And then that's how the basic play starts. Now it sounds really simple, but it, it can get pretty complicated because on the other end of that, now you can have DeAndre in screening as Eric Gordon lifts to the three-point line 30 feet out. Well, well, now Durant is 
with the ball and can choose to pass it to Eric Gordon at the three-point line, DeAndre Ayton cutting to the rim, Devin Booker swinging around for an open three-point shot, or now if they try to double Devin Booker in any way, Bradley Beal can then slip and, of course, cut directly to the rim where the easiest pass for Durant ever at that point is there. But the other option is because of all the off-ball movement, it's difficult to send a second guy at at Durant. So now all of a sudden, if all the off-ball movement is covered in some way or another, really smart switches or whatever it's going to be, Durant could just shoot it. <laughs> you have an option of one of the best mid-range shooters, if not the best mid-range shooter of all time, shooting a mid-range shot. And, you know, it's just you start to understand why Monty was fired. Not Not to say that he wasn't a great coach, but there was just so much more, I think, that could have been done. The, the Nuggets, I think, in particular, to your point, did a great job and probably were one of the best matchups for actually guarding Kevin Durant, just having Eric, Aaron Gordon on the team. He was, he was so excellent that is, in that series. He was, he was so good, and he's exactly the body type that could bother Durant in a way, uh, whereas just most defenders don't. It's like they're not even there, but a bigger, stronger guy who is tall enough and athletic enough to... Uh, contest the shot and not be moved in the post is exactly what you want. Um, but I think on the other side of that, the limitations of having Chris Paul on the team and someone who probably is not going to be comfortable setting a ton of screens, um, but also can't really shoot off movement and really doesn't prefer to even shoot off the catch. Yeah, although he barely, try can barely in the playoffs. stationary. Yeah. And you know, admittedly he was gone in the last few games anyway. So right. He didn't even play the last four games of that series. Um, but now with the team that they have as constructed, there needs to be a lot more movement because the players can do more things off movement than they could in the past. And I'm, I'm hoping when it comes to maximizing what Kevin Durant can do, it's not just about him. It's about what everyone else is doing around him. And to that point, we talked about it in the last episode. This is now the everybody does everything team. I'm going to keep hammering that home in this series because, look, I'm asking Bradley Beal and Devin Booker to be setting screens on those plays, and that's not yeah. going to be super fun to do over and over again. But you need to do it. And that means, uh, you know, sacrificing. DeAndre needs to sacrifice as well. But also that means Durant at times. I want to mention this one. As a screener, as the role man in the playoffs, is if you don't have this stat, I want to ask you guys to guess. How many possessions per game was Kevin Durant the screener the in the pick and roll uh, in the playoffs? Sam, do you have a guess? Per game, I, how many possessions? I never know how Synergy logs these. Do they count like popping or is it just roll man stuff? I don't know how to visualize I'm not 100% certain. I'm not 100% certain. I have no idea. A few but possessions. But keep in mind. A few possessions per game. Two uh, do per you game. have a guess, Steven? It was it's a very cold number. I know that. I don't know exactly how low it is, but I know it's very underwhelming. Zero point four. There you go. Yeah, yeah uh, zero point four. But listen to much? this number: one point two five points per possession on those plays. Now, it's an, it's an interesting thing when looking at the play type data for the playoffs, because what you start to see is that Devin Booker was insane in the playoffs and Durant 
I don't know what it was. Could it be that he was still kind of injured coming back from that ankle injury when the playoffs started? Or could it be that the Nuggets were just a really bad matchup for him and that he never quite found his footing on the Suns? Could it's it probably be a lot of those things that together. the lights were too bright? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a case to be made looking at the playoff data that Durant needs to spend more time off the ball. Kind of a crazy thing to say. Can uh, I... Yeah. yeah. Can I just throw another one out there to that point? And again, sure. it's like, sure. you're never, okay, you're never ever going to maximize exactly what KD is doing this way. I understand. I'm not saying, you know, I remember a lot of people got really mad at Monty that this even happened in the first place, but corner threes, Kevin Durant, the occasional play where he's, he's in the corner, like no surprise. It's really fucking good. This is data <laughs> over the past six years. I assume because this is not a guy, he doesn't take a lot of corner threes. But he, he takes maybe a few dozen per year. And so if you assemble all of that up over the past six seasons of data, starting when uh, he first went to Golden State, 9% of his total three-point attempts were from the corner. He shot 48% on those. Jesus. <laughs> over six seasons combined. That's a joke. Uh, and that's... That's not that's not like Yuta Watanabe, who he shot 50% on corner threes last year, but it was like his first time doing that on a sample size of like maybe 50 of those shots, and we're just like praying that he can sustain it. That's like that's a couple hundred attempts uh, of sample size and, and over half a decade of work to just say that, yeah, obviously KD can like he can size up anyone one-on-one -on -one and he can score in isolation, he can score in the post, and we need him playing all of those roles. But occasionally, just stick him in the corner, and yeah, I get it. He's an expensive yeah. decoy, but like, God damn it, it works. Anything <laughs> with this guy works. I think that is his sacrifice for the team. Obviously, like you mentioned, he want to see him screening it. Um, hopefully more off-ball as well and getting into slips and things like that for, again, easy baskets, but even more so screening on the ball. And then also, like you, got, like you all just finished speaking on, in the corners. Uh, that's his way of being sacrificial because of the gravity that Mike has mentioned. I think that's a hot word for the podcast. <laughs> but just that gravity that he has, he you never stray too far away from him. And it's usually two people that don't usually spray, stray too far away from him. So when you have somebody like that, you have to use it as an advantage. And that's exactly what he is as soon as he walks on the court. And he's just such a fascinating player because the all the on-ball stuff is insane and absurd. But he's not driving as much as Bradley Beal and Devin Booker, which means you kind of need those guys on the ball for the the rim pressure. He is a great passer, like a like a really great passer, Kevin Durant, but not still not quite the at least the playmaker that Devin Booker is in the way of I think uh, I don't know it's just different. Devin Booker has become an absurd playmaker in a way, and Durant is just not a guard. He he's his really main goal is to score on most of those plays. Whereas I could see Devin Booker averaging eight, nine assists this year if he wants to. Um, but I will say, you know, talking about the split cuts, he is sort of a playmaker in that role. If he's the guy, it was often Draymond Green, for example, on the Warriors, um, their point guard, de facto point guard, if you want to call it, call him that because of the assists per game in the post on those plays. And that could be Durant. And I do think that, you know, sacrificial, it's not just necessarily for Durant, just standing off the ball um, and being a decoy or screening off the ball. I do think because like he played with James Harden and Kyrie Irving before James Harden, not 
doesn't. A just willing off-ball shooter either, like similar to Chris Paul, right? One, one of the and, most disgraceful off-ball movers in NBA history. Yeah. To, contra- to contrast Durant being the best pure scorer in NBA yeah. history, James Harden is one of the laziest off-ball players we've ever seen. Perfect. Kyrie Irving, actually pretty good at everything offensively, so I'm not going to yeah. fault him for that. Good catch-and-shoot shooter, a good off-ball mover, but is somebody who tends to like to cook, right? He wants the ball, he wants to dribble, he's really good at it. Um, but Bradley Beal and 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 Devin Booker, some of the stuff you can do with them off the ball can be similar to the Warriors in that way just because of their ability to score at all three levels. And I do think there are ways for KD to be almost more of a point forward now at this point where now he is involved in that he has the ball, but he has to allow the play to develop a little bit more before looking for his own offense because of the types of things that Bradley Beal and Devin Booker can and should be doing off the ball a little bit um, more on this team than they were in the past. Obviously, the first time they're playing together, but this is just going to be a dramatically different team with dramatically different spacing. And I think Kevin Durant, you, you look at what the... I hate to just be a prisoner of the moment here, but you look at what the Nuggets can do with Jokic, who, of course, is one of the greatest passers ever, but the ability to have a tall player who can play make from the top of the key the amount of spacing that provides especially when they play at center which is something Kevin Durant can do is just insane and uh it's obviously something that defenses are struggling to keep up with in today's modern NBA and I think Kevin Durant can learn a little bit from that and develop in a way to be maybe a little bit more of a point forward with guys who are really really great off the ball what do you think about that Steven or, or Sam, go ahead. No, Stephen, do you want to go there first? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a sensational um, approach philosophy-wise for all the reasons that you mentioned. And, again, just having a player like Kevin Durant that's scores like someone that's 6'5 in a multitude of ways, but is actually really like 7'1 seven foot, seven foot with a 7'5 uh, wingspan, 7'6 wingspan, you have to take advantage of that. You have a unicorn. There's only so many across the NBA, and that's one way that you can consistently dictate, especially with the small ball lineup variations that the Suns can, uh, in theory at least, compile that can be effective uh, even in a playoff-style setting. You got to take advantage of it, and I think that was one of my biggest gripes, and I think all three of us would agree on that. Uh, with the postseason, it didn't feel like in moments where uh, they weren't getting the production they needed off the bench, especially in the nine Jokic minutes. That was a, a room. That was a area where they could put those Aaron Gordon and Jeff Green led lineups and compromise consistently by making them guard Kevin Durant with players that are not even close to his stature and just mm-hmm. dictate from different ways around the court in that manner. I think that was something that was missing from the pot for them in the playoffs. So, so if we're if we're finally here, then I'm just ready to leap into my Kevin Durant at center stats. Actually, um, yeah, you yeah. know. Look, we all watched every possession in the playoffs, so we saw it like it happened in 60 or maybe 90 second stints a couple of times. Uh, and I'm talking about the eight regular season games, too. Like the Suns played KD at center a few times. Uh, not enough to ever really get a, a, a true flow or a rhythm with those lineups, not enough to build a rotation that actually made sense. Contrast that to what he did in Brooklyn in the first half of last season. According to Cleaning the Glass, if you trust their stats, of KD's minutes with Brooklyn last season were at the center position. Do you want to know their net rating in those stats, uh, in in those minutes? It was elite. I know that. (laughs) Plus 14 
per 100 possessions with yeah. KD at center, plus four, these are the Nets, not the Suns, plus four in the other 70% of his minutes at power forward, his natural position power forward, which is to say, still a good team. You know, if you're consistently hitting plus four net rating per 100, that's a good team. You know, the, the contenders tend to be around plus seven, plus eight, plus nine overall, something like that. But plus 14, to Steven's point, is elite. And the fact that we just never saw it. Like, they had an offensive rating when Kevin Durant was at center. They were consistently just pairing him up, not even with good defensive players. Oftentimes, with just shooters. Like, just let's put Seth Curry on the floor. Let's put uh, Joe Harris on the floor. Not These are not good defenders. Uh, sometimes they were good defenders. Like, they would throw out, I don't know, Royce O'Neal or... Uh, you know, or some other some other wing players, but their offensive rating when KD was at center was 125 last season, yeah. which is mind-bendingly awesome offense. It's just like you can't do anything to stop that. There's nothing you can do. And so the fact that you were talking about it earlier with kind of the split cuts, Mike, and you understand why Monty was fired, but this is the big thing to me where it's like I can't believe that we never went to this more. Um, yeah. Because not only does it make sense on paper, you can just talk it out and it makes sense. But when you have the objective data that's also saying you should do this, and then you don't go to it, uh, it is just a little bit, a little bit of a mind fuck for me. Well, I, I do think it was. It's hard for the Suns last season. Like for example, I bring up the lack of of plays with Kevin Durant as a, a screener on pick and rolls, and part of the reason it was only zero point four in the playoffs was that number one in the entire playoffs in uh possessions as a screen and roll man in the entire nba do you want to guess deandre ayton deandre ayton yeah right and and so you have to you have to find time for deandre Ayton to play if he's one of your four best players on the team which he was last year he will be in this coming year um right and then jock landale was playing really well and it, it was a tough position to put monty williams in in the playoffs to find time to do that i do still agree that he should have done it and i hope to see it more in the coming years, and but the coach has to be relentless with the decisions that they make in order for the team to be able to win an NBA title. And Jokic is Jokic. It's like the worst possible matchup for you to want to deploy that lineup against the Jokic minutes. But we're, I think to agree with what Steven said earlier, we're talking more about like the Jeff Green, the Aaron Gordon type minutes, right? Of like, why was yeah. there not a response there? It's just baffling. baffling. Especially it, it, in a series, the demands for scoring is going to be as high as it was against any yeah, other team yeah. you would have seen in the playoffs, even if you did make it to the finals last season. It's going to be better with shooters, guys. <laughs> I'm pretty excited to see this team with with capable shooters. Will the defense suffer as a result? Yeah, probably a little bit. I'm I'm not fully convinced that... Bradley Beal's the reason for that being that if you look at the data for Chris Paul, it wasn't great last season either. Uh, but outside of that, I think, yeah, I think you can make that case. But I think it'll be pretty fascinating. Defensively, though, when we talk about uh, Kevin Durant, if you look at like the tracking statistics, the B-ball index data, got to shout them out too. Uh, at, at some point of every one of these podcasts, I got to mention them. Um, he He's much more of an... A, an interior defender at this point of his career than a perimeter defender. Can he defend on the perimeter? Yes. He's a capable perimeter defender, but his best usage is as a sort of weak side help defender at the rim where he can just block shots, deter people uh, from getting into the rim, force them to change their shots, that kind of thing. 
Uh, I think that when talking about how this team will play defense, I think the most likely scenario with the personnel that they have right now is that they go into most games, especially in the regular season, switching one through four, meaning Durant is going to be guarding guys in the perimeter pretty regularly. And that's just how the defense is going to look in the regular season. Do you agree with that, Steven? Is, do you, is that something you think they're going to do with this personnel that they have right now? And I think he holds up pretty well. What's your opinion of him as a perimeter defender as far as the switch situation? I think he's one of the best just because of his size. He can take away if somebody tries to, like, ghost into um, into cutting off the ball, if they try to, like, slip like Mikael Bridges would like to do. Kevin Durant's stature blocks that pass, so you might have created a reaction advantage, but can you get the ball there? No. So it's like it's, he's just such a, a connecting piece, especially when it comes to switching specifically. And when you're able to play in multiple schemes over the course of a game and keep teams at bay, flatten them out in moments when you want to, as just the ultimate weapon. What do you think defensively, Sam, about Durant? Is there anything that you'd like to see different next season than you saw in the previous season? He's gonna he's gonna hold up. I think he's he's gonna hold up. I, we're talking about him mostly in terms of um, set defense so far, right? Like I think that's yeah. kind of where we we've, we've put our focus. And in those one through four switch situations, I, I think he's gonna be okay. Um, I would, I, I guess, I'd also just want to quickly touch on maybe you know transition defense. I think is gonna be a big deal for this team this year. Was yeah. um, uh, an area where they waned a little bit last season at times. And when you look at some of the weaknesses of, we talked about it last week with Bradley Beal, um, it's also just a fact that Kevin Durant is not a good offensive rebounder. He never has been in his career. He's never significantly gone for those those offensive rebounding chances, uh, which is fine. Like I think, you know, at age 35, first of all, you don't necessarily want him battling in those scrums and putting himself in positions where uh, it, it could affect his durability, right? So that's fine. Uh, but if you've got multiple guys logging heavy minutes now between Beal, between Durant, uh, where you're kind of just admitting to yourself, we're not going to be a heavy offensive rebounding team, maybe unless DeAndre Ayton is dominant every night or or you start Josh Okogie or something, uh, how do you flip that weakness into a strength? Vogel really needs to to hammer down the transition defensive principles for those guys, and so that that includes a lot of Durant's positioning um, and, and Beal's as well. They're going to be really important on that end, I think. That's a that's a great point. And, you know, Chris Paul never turned it over. So we always had that ad- advantage of it's it's defense to to not turn it over because you're not giving up a live ball turnover. You know, it's so it makes a huge difference to not just give it up and allow teams to have a chance to, to go at it. But I think this team will have uh, look, uh, there's no way to to sugarcoat this. They're going to have more turnovers now with Chris Paul being gone. Uh, so, so that means that that style of defense running back, getting back, getting to the ball, stopping the ball, and then finding guys off ball, it's going to be a lot, especially if they're playing fast offensively, it's a lot of running and you know, this is sort of the theme, right? Sacrificing, but a few more possessions with KD where he just gets to like Steven was talking about at the beginning of the episode. If he just gets to chill in the elbow with his zero dribble, you know, some zero dribble possessions, if he just gets to chill in the corner occasionally, what is all that energy being conserved for? It's being conserved for something. It's being conserved so that you can make your impact on defense. The set defense is going to be really super important as well, um, but sometimes that's just going to be hustling back and, and, and getting back on transition defense. Again, because we just know KD's not 
He's not a, a hustle offensive rebounder. He never has been. So last thing I want to say for, for this segment, for me at least, is that I mentioned it with Bradley Beal. I'm, I'm going to mention it now with Kevin Durant, and I will mention it with Devin Booker. But the way in which this team is going to ask players to sacrifice in order for this team to succeed only works if the leaders of the team are doing it as well. And that means that it has to be obvious that they're not bothered by it. Now, there were, there's a famous possession, as we know, in Golden State where Draymond did not want to pass it to, to Kevin Durant, and people pointed that as the reason he left Golden State. But Devin Booker has been sacrificing a lot in their winning recently with playing with Chris Paul and playing with other players. We need Devin Booker to continue to sacrifice because ultimately I think he is the main leader of this team. And then of course, Kevin Durant is right there with him as the other main leader of this team. And we need them to exemplify that on a regular basis on this team, setting screens for guys, being a decoy, cutting as a decoy, absorbing contact so that other people can score um, being willing to stand off the ball occasionally on plays or maybe even not taking that shot as the shot clock expires or as the uh, end of the quarter expires and those kinds of things, getting rebounds when necessary, running back in transition, all the things that we've talked about, they need to exemplify this because we're going to be asking Bradley Beal, who was the best player on his team for the last six years, to sacrifice for this team. We're going to be asking DeAndre Ayton, who, who is a max contract player who on a lot of other teams in the NBA would be taking probably the second most shots. We're going to be asking him to take the fourth most shots on this team. Uh, So all of them need to exemplify that in order for it to work going into the playoffs. And that is something that maybe it's a little bit more mental. Maybe it's a little bit more nebulous as far as how to describe it. But that's something that Kevin Durant needs to do on this team next season as well. And I think he's very capable of it. And I think he's all about winning. He's obsessed with basketball as we know. Uh, so it's something I expect him to do. I think, what do you think about that, Steven? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that's one of the pieces in his overarching dynamic that was underrated in his addition last season. There was a little bit of uneasiness with the Suns roster in terms of, uh, expecting things to change at some point. And the pressure that was kind of adding up on that rendition of the team, and there was there was some need for change in some ways. And I think that one of the things that Durant brought in outside of his all-time level talents and scoring abilities was the leadership. I think one of the quickest things we noticed was his reach with DeAndre Ayton, who was disgruntled all season for reasons that we know and some reasons we still don't know. But I think that reach and being able to have his ear and have his attention and even be seen speaking to him on in during games. Um, and just kind of upping his confidence and having him play um, closer to the type of player that we all see him to be able to be, I think that's important. And then also, obviously, more than anything else, the connection with Devin Booker. Um, I mean, those dudes are in a, some type of bromance that is going to bring a different <laughs> type of chemistry. And it's, it's really dope to see just because you know how D-Book is, you know how KD is. Those are two of the most just pure hoopers. If they're not hooping in terms of working out, guess what? They're probably watching a game somewhere. Might even be a high school team like they did when they came to Chicago. So it's just such a uh, kindred spirits type relationship there that their leadership should definitely benefit from it as a team. He's also such 
an unselfish player, like almost sometimes a little bit to a fault. It's uh, but it was fun just to watch him in the playoffs, like obviously trusting role players who are clearly much worse than him. Uh, like I remember in the case of Jock Landale, he developed some great chemistry with Jock Landale that that we noticed. Um, assisting him a lot of times in the playoffs. He also, if you go back to Brooklyn, had that bromance, if you want to talk about another bromance, with Watanabe. That's a guy who he really played well with, loved his hustle in Brooklyn, loved his ability to shoot the the corner three and, and kind of the three-point shot in general, um, and argued for, for him, I think, to be one of the guys that the Suns brought in this summer. So, you know, unselfish sometimes a little bit to a fault, but I think we're going to see him reach out and we're going to see his leadership that you're speaking to, Stephen, um, as it relates to kind of basically everyone one through one through fifteen or one through seventeen now, however many two way spots there are <laughs> uh, on the roster, it's not just going to be how he interacts with Da, how he interacts with Book uh, or Beal. I think it's going to be everyone. Yep, I agree with that as well. And just to sort of shift to the last part of this podcast, I will say, and and this is a point that you made there as well. Steven, I'm pretty confident in his ability to do that. I think it's something that's going to be really important for him. The thing about Durant is that he has been picked apart and dissected throughout his career. Every decision he's made off the court, every decision he's made on the court has been called into question time and time again. And I think that what is important to him at this point of his career is continuing to be competitive, continuing to win and continuing to have a chance to win a championship. And that's something that I think uh, will bleed into every single part of his time here in Phoenix. And I'm very excited to watch it. Now, some of the other stuff, as far as his ability to uh, be somewhat more of a point forward, as I described it, um, you know, the Suns running split cuts. Maybe that's not entirely up to him. That'll be how the Suns are, are coached. Maybe we'll have to do a Frank Vogel external development episode at some point of this run. Uh, Sam. We're not uh, doing that. No, There's no stats. I'm putting my foot down. We're not doing that. <laughs> Maybe at some point in the season, but not before the season. <laughs> but the, the point is, like, there's a lot of ways that he can develop, a lot of the things that he can change, but so much of it, I think, will be dependent on the rest of the team and, and what happens. And... um. You know, I've mentioned it time and time again here, but I think this is one of the harder seasons to to predict what it's going to look like because ultimately, if you want to call it a hierarchy of stars, um, it'll develop. Like it's not something that you can force onto this team. It'll have to develop based on how they play and how they interact with each other. Um, you know, the one thing I can predict is I think it's going to look really good, especially come playoff time, <laughs> as long as everybody's healthy. But how exactly it's going to look is is something that uh, is is going to be uh, all of us are going to experience it together, I guess. Um, Stephen, if is there any element of this conversation that you feel very confident that he's going to develop in, and, and maybe something you feel a little less confident in? Uh, yeah, I think he's going to improve his uh, with the turnovers. That's something that he spoke on at multiple times in the postseason, post game, and respective games where um, he just kind of gauged the box score and he would mention the turnovers. And you could tell there's something that's eating at him because he's, like, past being a competitor and all of that stuff that makes him great, he's a perfectionist. 
We see that in his jump shot looking the same every single time he takes it. And a lot of his moves in general, he makes the one and two dribble pull-ups. They're mesmerizing because they look the same every time, regardless of who the defender is and whatnot. So I think him getting a better feel for the playmaking part, and obviously we're talking about somebody that's been an above-average playmaker his entire career and one of the best playmakers for someone that's over like 6'8 or 6'9 in NBA history. Uh, but just finding a way to be more efficient with the ball and not turning the ball over as much, I think it's something that he's going to really key in on this season. And I think it's something that I have a lot of confidence in him doing better. And I think the other thing for me that stands out in just watching this film and looking back at my notes from the playoffs last season is when he does get those opportunities for catches in the post, him being able to hold his position to where he gets the most advantageous catch point so, for example, to kind of paint a picture, say he posts up um, a smaller guard after he sets a pistol screen for uh, Devin Booker, let's say. Goes to the post. He's right on the block when he initially sets up. Sometimes over the course of his career, he's allowed shorter players to kind of push him off his mark. So that initial spot at the top of the block that we mentioned, he might catch that closer to where the logo is if they have a logo in the mid-range, or if he might be a little bit closer to the elbow or free throw line extended on the catch. Obviously, he's still great because he's Kevin Durant, but the closer you get to the basket, as with anybody, the more uh, of a chance that that shot is going to go in or that there's going to be a foul because he's closer to the bucket. So him being able to sink his hips and just really hold his positioning with his base and then keeping that catch as close to the block or with one foot in the paint as he could possibly Mm -hmm. be, that's where his zero dribble pull-ups are just absolute daggers every single time, and it's really the efficiency of a layup. You, you said it right there with the one foot in the paint, because I know that's something that's been stressed so much from the Suns development staff towards DeAndre Ayton, too. It's like we think about it often in terms of these developing big men, these post-up big men like an Ayton who, who benefit from that. But really, it's everyone benefits from that. And it, like no one is immune to the laws of, of NBA physics, even a guy as talented as the legendary as Kevin Durant. It's a war of inches. And the closer he gets to the basket, the more he's going to be able to generate that gravity and, and open up opportunities for other guys on the outside. So, yeah, I think he's going to I think he's going to improve a lot too. just to echo what Steven's saying as a playmaker, cutting down on turnovers. I know we've covered him at the center position. Uh, Mike, you're really into the the split cuts idea, um, but I think he's going to learn to play with DeAndre Ayton too in the in the opening and closing lineups. Like, you know, we talked about it last week with uh, with Bradley Beal, but I think empty corner sets are, are going to be a big feature for the Suns this year. Or at least I'd like to see them be a big feature. DeAndre Ayton sags down into the into the dunker spot, and you just have Kevin Durant and pick your poison between Devin Booker or Bradley Beal on the strong side running a two man game. Katie's going to get a lot of opportunities there to score uh, from from the mid range, the or or the elbow area, or he could get a lot of opportunities for playmaking out of that area as well, where he's running a one two game with uh, or a two man game with Beal or Booker. The other one of them is on the weak side, spacing out the fifth guys in the corner, uh, and Aiton's just there to clean up. Uh, you know, I th- I think that's going to be something they go to a lot, and it's going to look really good. And if I could just mention something that's kind of off script from Kevin Durant being Kevin Durant centric. I would love if Kevin Young evolved the Suns' spacing manipulation process and not just stashing DeAndre Aiden at the opposite dunker spot of a Kevin Durant uh, mid-post touch and not just having him occasionally flash to the nail to help to make a high-low pass on the second side or something like that. I would love to see DeAndre Aiden be used as more of a handoff hub 
on the second side. So we talk about that 45-degree angle pass when the defense zones up on the second side when they send two to the ball on Kevin Durant. I would love if DeAndre Aiden is spaced at that at that opposite slot area and can get into like those second side handoffs automatically once he catches that skip pass because this man is never going to go and guard him there. They're going to show that extra attention to Kevin Durant underneath the basket. So Aiden's going to be wide open more often than not. I would love to see him get in those situations where he catches and now, like you all mentioned, whichever one of Devin Booker and Bradley Beal being the post-entry passer, which is a, a whole other weapon in and of itself, but whichever one of those two isn't involved in that action directly from the second side, if they could get into just a catch and then get into a dribble handoff from DeAndre Aiden, kind of like how the Miami Heat used Bam Adebayo, I think that would be an excellent way to keep pace in terms of playing out of an advantage and even just add to an advantage, um, just looking at the numbers from the second side and just the way that Aiden is featured within the offense. Yes, it's interesting. You might bring that up. I watched uh, some footage Durant this morning, and they did something similar with Durant screening on the ball for Chris Paul, and then Chris Paul swung it to Devin Booker, where DeAndre Ayton was already in the screen position for a second side pick and roll. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially the same thing, except the ball swings to to Ayton first. And we talked about it in the Beal episode. Beal was essentially the most efficient scorer off handoffs in the NBA last season. Uh, So if you're going to do that, I would say use Beal a lot in those scenarios. And also on the other end of that means that Devin Booker, Kevin Durant's on the other side. So there's a lot of gravity there as well. It's going to be hard to help when, I mean, obviously Beal's already going to have the third best defender on him. And then all of a sudden he's going to be flying around a handoff where the guys on the opposite side are now two of the best scorers in the NBA. It's going to be fascinating to see how that works. And I, I, Pick your poison. It's either a three from from Booker or Durant or a dunk by Bradley Beal. And even if they help, it could be a dunk uh, by Aiton. Like, there's so many options. You leave the fifth guy wide open, but then if that fifth guy is Eric Gordon, (laughs) good luck. (laughs) It's over. And even then, it still might not work. You could still find Durant and Booker. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Safe to say that this episode... Uh, has me very excited. And I think we have talked about just why it still feels like the Suns are just now integrating Kevin Durant into the uh, Suns and into the system that we're going to see this season, making this more of an external than internal development podcast. Steven, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Make sure everyone listening to read everything Steven writes and all the places that he writes. Steven, I'll give you a chance to plug all those places and your Twitter account here. Yeah, I am, um, like Mike mentioned in the opening, uh, my, my Twitter account start there is at staytrue, S.3, that's S-T-A-Y-T-R-U-E-S-D-0-T, and then the number three at the end. And, uh, yeah, I do content creation with uh, with uh, PHNX now. I'll be doing stuff continuously with the CHGO side of things under that same umbrella. Uh, with the WNBA playoffs coming up for the Chicago Sky. Um, that'll be my most recent work that'll be coming out um, over the next week or two. And um, and then lastly, just doing stuff at Brightside, continuing to um, make deposits on my, my journalism grind. So we're getting to it. You, you epitomize the grind never stops. It's just you absolutely never stop with this stuff, man. It is inspirational, to be honest. I appreciate it. Sometimes I don't know where these reserves of energy come from, but... When you love hoop and you're sicko about it, I mean, I guess you just do what you do. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Steven. I appreciate y'all Mike. always. Be great. One more thing if I can plug before we go here. I, uh-huh. I didn't bring this up for you, Mike, but this week to celebrate Kevin Durant oh. External Development Week, are we oh. doing it? Are we watching we're the gonna, 20, We're definitely going to try. Are we watching the 2012 film Thunderstruck starring Kevin Durant live on playback? Follow <laughs> along on our Twitter accounts uh, to figure out exactly when that's going to be. We're going to try and watch that on playback. This was an idea that originated on a Patreon episode a couple weeks back and we were talking about it in our Discord server. So, uh, yeah, I think we're going to try and do that. Do either of you guys want to guess the Rotten Tomatoes score for this movie? Oh, uh, 17. It's it's 27. Uh, so if you would like to be one of the lucky 27% of people who like this film, join us. Again, sometime this week, we, we haven't announced a time yet, but we're going to try and watch it. Should be a lot of fun. People have requested ways to use playback. Obviously, during the season, we try and do them relatively often because it's fun to watch games live, Suns games live, that is, uh, with everyone in there trying to find ways to use it in the off season as well and what could be a more perfect opportunity not not to mention it'll be a 360p youtube <laughs> upload of of the movie because that's the best way to find it <laughs> yes that's uh, All right. sounds good playback uh, slash the timeline right yeah yeah that's right playback.tv slash the timeline TV, yeah we'll yes. announce that soon thanks everyone for listening <laughs>